0: This is a CNIB Foundation podcast.
1: Hello, I'm James DeNoss, and this is CNIB Read. I'm here with Katie Miller to discuss her new book, Late Breaking, a collection of her short stories. Hello, Katie. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, James. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. As we are glad to have you. Before we begin our conversation... I just want to say that I found late-breaking to be a beautiful book, darkly beautiful, sometimes disturbing, but beautiful nonetheless. Thank you. And thank
0: you for reading it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Believe me, my pleasure. The stories are rich and complex, filled with lives that intersect and alter other lives, sometimes for the better, sometimes not. And the characters themselves are rich and complex. They are alive. They are a presence. They are real. They are so real, in fact, that they now inhabit my head. They have taken up residence, and they have changed me. I'm not yet exactly sure how, but they have. You, on the other hand, have created these characters and lived intimately with them for quite some time. How have they changed you?"
0: That's a wonderful question. Thank you. Well, The first thing that I can tell you is that when I finished the manuscript, just before I sent it to Biblioasis, my publisher, and this would have been in uh, 2017, I sent the manuscript off and I felt profoundly lonely for a while. It was a very, very wistful feeling. Normally, you feel great. You think, okay, I finished this and it's off. And yes, there was some of that. But also, I realized that I was going to miss that community of imaginary people that had been greeting me at my desk every morning for three years, uh, since 2014, as a matter of fact, when I, they first entered my head. And... Um, Yes, I have been affected by them. Uh, They're very real to me. I hope this doesn't sound too cuckoo. Uh, And I'm fond of every single one of them, Uh, even the creepy guy in the woods.
1: Oops. The brogues man.
0: (laughs) The brogues man, yes.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, um, it doesn't sound cuckoo because – Tolstoy found his characters so real he would actually have conversations with them. So, uh, did you go that far?
0: <laughs> I didn't go that far, or at least let's put it this way: I'm not aware of having gone that far. But maybe I was muttering away on the bus or something, and people were looking at me and shaking their heads. Uh, it wouldn't. It doesn't surprise me that Tolstoy did that. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that other writers might do it, and I can see myself coming to it. Um, you do get fond of these creatures, and something that I learned. Uh, early on as a writer, and I'm so glad that I learned it, is that they are not puppets. Uh, Characters that you create are not puppets. They have a reality, and the smartest thing that you can do, to a degree, of course, because you are the writer, you're in charge of the story, the smartest thing that you can do is let them go. Uh, You think they're supposed to go over here and do this, But suddenly, they're going over there and doing that. And rather than hauling them in uh, the way you would a dog on a leash, the best thing to do is just let them go and see what happens. And I've had characters—I've sometimes had minor characters take a story over and make it their own and make it a better story. And as I say, I'm not sure how I learned that. Maybe when I was studying acting, I majored in theater. Maybe that's when I learned that, but I'm so glad that I did.
1: They do the unexpected sometimes. They do. They 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 have a bit of a will of their own. Yes, they do. Wow. Well, each of these stories is prefaced by an Alex Colville painting. Tell us something about the Colville connection and the genesis of these stories.
0: Well, it started in 2014 uh, when I was between projects, and I went to the AGO. This was in August of 2014. I went to the AGO to see the Alex Colville exhibit that was on then. And I knew that I had always liked Alex Colville, but I wasn't exactly sure why. And when I got to the exhibit, I was just entranced uh, because— some wonderful things have been done. Some marvelous parallels had been drawn between, for example, Colville's paintings and Alice Monroe's writing. And several Alice Monroe books have Colville paintings on the cover. Um, a parallel was also drawn uh, with the, the films of the Coen brothers. And I I love that kind of thing. I love seeing how the arts can cross-pollinate that way. And I was just entranced. I was wandering around, and I was in one of the big rooms of the exhibit, surrounded by the paintings, and a phrase came into my mind, the Colville stories. And I just got so excited. Uh, this kind of epiphany does not happen to writers, or at least I should say, does not happen to this writer very often. Usually, uh, ideas kind of work their way up through the mud like a crocus you know, or something like this. But this was full bloom right away, the Colville stories. And that phrase went through my mind like a mantra. And I knew that I had my next project. So that's that was the genesis, uh, and I started with a, a painting called Woman on Ramp, and it became the story Witness, and that was the beginning, and things just rolled on from there.
1: Each painting seems to suggest a story that's just begging to be told, and you told it.
0: Well, I told one story that that could have come out of that painting, and the wonderful things about the wonderful thing about Alex Colville is that he suggests so much. There's so much implication. Uh, This is why we sometimes find his paintings rather disturbing. Uh, They're very subtle. Um, They sometimes capture what I think of as the Colville moment, which is the moment just before or just after something may be happening Um, the iconic painting, of course, the horse and train, the horse galloping towards an oncoming train, you're left with questions. Is that animal going to veer off the track? Is it going to be annihilated by the train? Or because the perspective makes the horse so much bigger than the train, is the horse somehow miraculously going to annihilate the train? There are all kinds of questions that come out of those stories. I'm wandering here. I hope I'm not. No, (laughs) no, no.
1: Actually, I find it fascinating because uh, his paintings remind me of the Japanese artistic concept of ma, which is emptiness, right? It could be translated as a a gap or emptiness. Another translation could be an emptiness full of possibilities.
0: Okay. That one I can relate to. Yes. Not pure emptiness, but an emptiness full of possibilities for sure. Yes. And you can fill that emptiness forever with anything. Yes. Almost.
1: I mean, just glancing through some of Colville's paintings, I came upon one. Just I opened, I opened the book that's there, and the painting "Woman with Revolver." Mm-hmm. Yes. Well. Yes. Has she just done something? Is she about to do something?
0: She's a naked woman standing at the top of <laughs> exactly. the staircase, and you and she's her arm is hanging down. She's holding onto a revolver, and I fully agree with you. Is she going to shoot somebody? <laughs> Has she just done it? Is she going to shoot herself?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was another
0: Has she heard a sound and she thinks it's an intruder and so she's armed herself? Mm-hmm. What is – something is happening, but what?
1: What is the story? Yeah, exactly. What is the story? Exactly. Which, which leads to another question. What the people in late breaking say to each other is important, but perhaps equally important is what they do not say. Words unspoken secrets unshared. Uh, For example, I'm thinking about Lynn Sparks never telling his wife he knew about her infidelity. Miranda Shanklin whispering her secret only to the dead at the funeral home where she works. Clarissa and Ramsey Pettengill sitting vigil at their murdered daughter's graveside and not exchanging a word. And, of course, Elliot Summers unable to tell Jill Macklin the truth about himself. Could you give us an example of how these hidden, unsaid, and undone things changed the life of at least one of the characters in Late Breaking.
0: Well, I think that probably the change occurs when the unsaid demands to be said. For example, Elliot making plans to visit his daughter, with whom he has not spoken, knowingly, for years, although she's been phoning him up on an old landline phone that doesn't have call display, and just breathing into the phone when her father says, Hello? Hello, who's there? And then finally hangs up. So somehow push comes to shove. Um, also, Clarissa and Ramsey Pettingill, and I'm very glad that you remembered them because they're – I love that old couple even though they have their problems. Eventually, words came to the surface like bubbles. Yes. Through, on, a, on a pond. Um, I hope that, that – is that going in the direction you were – No, it's
1: hope? exactly going in the direction. Mm-hmm. They spoke nothing for at least the first year of that vigil. That's right. And at that, that was when <clears throat> a line from, from T.S. Eliot came to me <clears throat> that in, in this last of meeting places, we grope together and avoid speech.
0: Ah, I love that. And yet the groping is articulate. Yes. The, ar- the groping is perhaps more articulate than any speech could be. Mm-hmm. I like that. Thank you.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. It's you know, they, these these are really these are characters that cling to you. They really cling to you, and there are certain characters, maybe more than one, that we identify with. I was fascinated, and you just mentioned him, by the uh, the character of Elliot Summers. It's not that he's a terrible guy. He seems to be genetically incapable. Of communication, I don't. It's his. Na- it's like the scorpion and the frog. It's his nature.
0: His nature, right. yes. <laughs> there is something lacking in Eliot, and yet, as you say, he's not such a bad guy. He's. It's almost like a, a well, something missing, as you put it. Um, and I wrote Octopus Heart in large part because I wanted to give Elliot a chance to redeem himself, or at least to explain himself. Uh, Elliot is a man who uh, seems to fall in love with uh, the character Jill Macklin in the title story, *Laid Breaking. And then suddenly, just as they're getting fond of each other, he withdraws and becomes very cold because he is, or he believes he is incapable of loving. And he's had a lot of Uh, pain in his life when he's tried to love or when someone has loved him and he hasn't been able to, to return it. So he withdraws from Jill. And in Octopus Heart, we find Elliot visiting the aquarium, the Toronto Aquarium one day, and uh, becoming very intrigued by the octopus there, and, and I have to say of all my animal characters, and there are some non-human characters that I'm very fond of in Late Breaking, Ella the octopus is my favorite. She reaches out a tentacle to Elliot, and what happens is that they they just sort of look at each other through the glass, and for the first time, Elliot feels that he is being seen and so he does a very strange thing. He keeps visiting Ella the octopus over and over and over just to have this sensation of finally being seen and understood by this completely alien creature, as he himself is kind of alien.
1: And Ella, if, if the metaphor of the heart, it's, it, I, I found that also fascinating because Elliot has problems feeling. But the octopus, by its nature, feels everything, even through its tentacles. Yes, she does. <laughs> she does.
0: She uh, actually. It, it, what I learned about octopuses or octopi uh, is that. Or octopodes. <laughs> Really? That's a new one. I haven't heard that.
1: Octopodes. (laughs) Okay, octopodes.
0: (laughs) What I learned about these creatures is that each tentacle is for a different thing and that they don't actually have a centralized brain. The brain is distributed throughout their being. And although they look like they have a head, that's actually the body. And so the brain, as we think of it, is, is... distributed through the eight tentacles and so on. And so you have one tentacle for grasping, one for smelling, one for seeing. Uh, it's it's an amazing creature.
1: It is, and I wonder what, what life looks like through yes. those uh, senses. Right? Yes, yes. Uh, and this, you know, very, very, uh, very neatly leads to uh, another question that is— uh, a uh, totemic animal motifs weave their way through late breaking. In particular, in particular, ravens and crows. What do these creatures symbolize for you?
0: Thank you for noticing my ravens. Uh, I have a thing about ravens. In fact, I have a T-shirt that says "Raven Lunatic." <laughs> I've, I've I've always loved those birds, and I tried very hard to embed a raven in every story in late breaking, and I came close. Uh, whether it's a real raven or a carving of a raven or a reference to a raven. I came close. Or a plate. Or a okay. plate, yes. Yes, a raven plate. Um, I have loved ravens for years, and I've, I read a lot about them. Uh, they are incredibly intelligent birds. They are believed to be as intelligent as dogs. Uh, or perhaps more so, they have amazing facial recognition. If you have something to do with a raven, for example, if you um, if you put a band on a raven's leg so that he can be tracked in some way, even though you don't hurt him doing this, you will annoy him. And two years later, if he encounters you, he will remember that you were the guy that put this thing on my leg. So take it off. Uh, or if you do a raven a kindness, they will remember that too. Um, Anyway, I as I say, I have a thing about ravens, um, and I was very pleased with – I'll go on about the other animals, if I may. And sure, you go right ahead. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm fond of uh, Frank the horse who shows up in the story Higgs boson and helps uh, Marion, the main character of that story, realize that it's time for her to change. It's time for her to take a little more uh, charge of her life. And she learns this by rather reluctantly getting up on a horse for the first time in her life while she's in Bermuda with her husband, and their their marriage is on a rather rocky ground at the time. But there's a kind of communion between her and Frank the horse, and things go on from there. Uh, who else we got, we've got Ella the octopus. We also have Sister the beagle. And Sister was part of a pair, uh, a brother and sister, uh, from the same litter, and they were simply called Sister and Brother. Uh, brother, unfortunately, was hit by a car early in life, but Sister survives, and she is the companion in two stories of Lynn Sparks. Um, and he's in his 80s, and she's probably in the dog equivalent of that. So they have each other after Len is widowed. But I was very fond of my animals. And I, I'm reminded of something that Alec Colville, uh, Alex Colville used to say about animals, uh, and he frequently painted animals, his own pets in particular. Uh, he said that animals were incapable of evil. Uh, they were essentially innocent unless they were in some way uh, bent that way by human interaction. He greatly admired animals and considered them essentially innocent.
1: Yes. And mm-hmm. and it's, it's funny you mention how a raven will remember, so yes. will a crow. Oh yes. <clears throat> I had a, oh, yes. I had a feud going with an entire flock of crows or a murder of crows. It's amazing and you're still alive, James. And, well, you'll listen. <laughs> yes. They followed me around. They waited for me for hours. Yes. For hours to emerge from the library where I would go to read. Uh-huh. Hours. They would wait for me and harass me all the way home. I really want to know what the feud was about. We started arguing. I didn't Uh, like the way one crow was cawing at me. I see. And so I responded rather vulgarly. And the crow didn't like that. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. (laughs) That's what – it doesn't take much. Be careful what
0: you say to a crow.
1: They're easily (laughs) offended.
0: (laughs) Well, they have great dignity. And
1: I used to live at a farm in Arkansas and a crow would know when you had a gun. Oh really? When you had a gun, they they had no care for you unless they saw that rifle in your hands. Mhm. Very intelligent creatures.
0: Very, very
1: You've been listening to part one of my three-part interview with author Katie Miller about her new book, Late Breaking. Be sure to catch parts two and three. Go to CNIB.ca to find the scheduled broadcasting dates. For CNIB Read, this is James DeNoss saying goodbye and good reading.
0: For CNIB Foundation podcasts, visit cnib.ca slash podcasts.